Welcome to the spoiler cast for Rehydrate. This episode will contain spoilers for all of the three-body problem, the dark forest, and death's end. If you don't want to be spoiled on future events, please skip this episode. This is Season 5, Episode 3, Australia, where we will be discussing the second half of Part 2 of Death's End by Lucy Shin. My name is Amin, and I have only read up to the current reading. My name is Talia. Um, I've read all these books. Hey, this is Dan. I've read the entire series as well. So no follow-up this week, but we'll just jump right into the brief summary. So Tricelaris attacks the Earth after Chengxin becomes swordholder. The Great Resettlement forces all of humanity into Australia with terrible conditions and fighting over resources. Blue Space learns how to use 40 fragments and destroys the droplets before they can attack and activates the universal broadcast system. Blue Space and Gravity encounter native 40 creatures who are forced out of the collapsing dimension. And humanity learns that the broadcast has been sent and returns home from Australia. So the first thing I had was actually a question from the main show, which I haven't edited yet, so no one would have heard it yet. But uh, so, I mean, you you had you, you started a thought about like saying, "Oh, wasn't Trisolaris destroyed?" Did you read ahead? Because that happens like pretty soon after the into well, part, I, into part I, three. I did, not, I did not read ahead, so oh. I was. I don't know where else I would have heard that. Well, Again, probably, I don't try to avoid here. spoilers in general when I'm on the internet, so I might have read it somewhere else. I don't think I don't think it was mentioned on this show at all, but. I'm um, positive we we talked about it. We must have. Uh, we must have talked about it because it happens. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you must have. But no, I did not read ahead. I, I went back and looked, and I'm I am still at the start of part three. So uh, okay, yeah. Because I was like, I, w- I was trying to when you were talking about it, I was like trying to like not pick up on it too much because like I know it's it's a spoiler for the next next part because it's like it happens like almost eh, not immediately but pretty soon into the into part three. So yeah. <laughs> so so is, is my is my memory correct that Trisolaris isn't destroyed, but one of its sons are Yeah. Which, which uh, therefore yes. leads if to If you say Trisolaris then you mean the planet itself. Yeah, so Trisolaris wasn't destroyed, but one of its sons was, which therefore makes Trisolaris inhabitable or something. I don't know. I'm making no, it, up. So they they the aliens or whoever is sending these um the the dark forest strikes use like the, the and they did it for the the star that Lua G sent a spell on. Uh, they use a photoid that basically goes into the star at like light speed and then makes it explode and you know grows really big and kind of engulfs all the stuff around it, including oh, Trisolaris. Okay. It's an, so, it's sort of funny to contrast this kind of attack with the kind that like the um, wall facers had been scheming of in book two. They're like build all these expensive bombs that like deplete Earth's all entire resources and build this fighter jet whereas aliens just like flick a dust moat at your star and use (laughs) the power that's already in the star because like that's the most explosive most powerful force is like it's already right there in their home system (laughs) the immaturity of humanity again and again yeah so that becomes a big plot point so Basically, what happens, you know, the the that happen they see that happen to Trisolaris, and it happens like almost immediately, you know. So, like, I know, like Tim and, and you have been talking about in the main show of like, oh, we still have a couple hundred years or whatever until it actually happens to us. But like, Trisolaris gets destroyed like almost at the 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 scale of things because like it takes a while for the light to it takes four years for the light to get to us, right? Uh, but it happens like almost immediately, so we like have to start reacting to, um, you know, what we're gonna do to prevent that photoid from attacking us and so the the book kind of evolves into like this really interesting the next part talks a lot about like discussions of how we're going to prevent these attacks from happening and like what we're going to do and it 
of course, devolves into like more factions, <laughs> which is awesome because we, we love Lucian's factions. Just different ways to protect ourselves, and none of them work because they the they they change tack because they can see that our solar system would be protected against a photoid attack potentially. So they just use a totally different mechanism. Like it's no big deal. <laughs> I see. The next thing I want to talk about is, like I mentioned on the main show also, like a super controversial issue. It's probably the most controversial issue you know, that causes like these different factions among the, the fandom and discussions online or whatever is the, is Chengxin responsible or not responsible for Tristellaris attacking the earth by her not activating deterrence? And so, I mean, and I talked on the main show, but Tali, I want to get your perspective since this is really the first time that, you know, she would have been the, the, the kind of the focal point for, you know, the, the inflection point, I guess, for, you know, should she have activated deterrence or, you know, it, if she was never supposed to activate deterrence because that was her role that she was elected for. So where do you come down on it? So jog my memory, but I think it's revealed to us in this part that the Trisolaran ships as you mentioned in the summary, they, they attack Earth, but yeah. it's more than just they turn to attack Earth. Like they were actually launched like five years ago. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, so the the second fleet um, is, was launched, uh, I think, yeah, four years ago or sometime. And the, the interesting part in the chapter is like they say like they had to launch them very at a very specific date because if the humans would have seen the trisolarian the new trisolarian fleet it was like 400 something ships going at light speed they would have known that something is up so they had to launch it that coincided with the time that the sword holder ceremony was going to occur that they predicted right they didn't i mean they didn't even wait until they knew for sure that it was going to be chung sheen they launched and then humans caught sight of them after they'd already made their decisions. But it seems like it was yeah. already made up in the Trisolarans' minds even before humanity chose Chengxin. So I don't think you can put it squarely on her shoulders because, I mean, humanity could have zigged instead of zagged. And then right. the Trisolarans would have been backfooted. But humanity as a whole chose her. And that's right. sort of exactly what the enemy expected. And if you read The Art of War, I think there's something in there about not doing exactly what your enemy thinks you're going to do. Well, the problem is that humanity didn't, at this point doesn't consider Trislerus even to be an enemy anymore, right? Like they just like, right. they think, oh, we're cool now. Like we're, we're you're collaborating, you're giving us cool movies. Uh, you know, like we're, we're friends now. Like we're going to, and eventually the Soul Holder is not going to be a thing anymore. We're not going to need it because why would Trislerus attack us, right? Uh, and so far, right. and this is much. the same time that they're they're not only doubting that they have enemies in Trisolaris, but they're doubting the cosmos ha- as an enemy. Like right. it seems like they had swung very hard into believing the dark forest theory, and then started to depart from it. And they talk about maybe the Trisolarans have this like cosmic persecution, like they are all gaslighting themselves that they're right. actually being attacked because they're used to their scary homeworld. Um, and I think this is sort of, you know, a final blow for them is that they realize that they have enemies in sight and out of sight. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, I mean, it might be tempting to see Chung Shin as like the person who didn't press the button. But again, I mean, if you read the events, he, I mean, she didn't seize power, you know? Right. She right. was chosen. Yeah. And she was chosen for a reason, but I mean, I mean, like, it's hard to say like if the Trisolarians actually set it up or they just saw the writing on the wall of like how this is going. Mm, I, I think that's a right, bit of both, right? right? 
like they definitely like try to lull humanity into like a sense of security, but like, oh yeah, we're cool now. We're sending you art, we're sending you whatever, you know, we're giving you our technology. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like they're they're always like making sure that like, well, maybe you shouldn't have so many gravitational wave antennas. Like maybe those can go out full in the wrong hands. Like maybe just have five. One thing I don't <laughs> understand is that they've had this exchange of technology for the entire time. And it seems like later in the book, it's sort of revealed we've been triple crossed instead of double crossed and like actually the secrets that the trisolarans first we expected that the trisolarans would give us lies but then we were surprised they give us truth but then later in the book it's like actually they lied about Mm. fundamental theory i just don't understand why that wasn't like a clue um before these attacking trisolaran ships if they couldn't verify that some of the quote-unquote science they sent was actually bogus oh did they I, i don't remember that part yeah, is that, is yeah. That later? It's um mid bunker world when they oh, okay. build their circumsolar navigator and then they like finally get some real answers to fundamental theory. Yeah, so like the the trisolarians definitely evolved in that that they they did uh, come up with the idea you know, or the the ability to deceive based off of mm-hmm. humans humans, which is sort of an exciting yeah. reveal. I know that yeah. we don't get the reveal of trisolaris. We sort of would expect to see them by now, but we get you know insight that they've learned this skill yeah yeah it would have been cool to like see a little bit more from the trisolarian perspective like the only thing we really get is from from sofan like the the chapters with um uh, the pacifist and the the sofan chapters are so cool we we, mm-hmm. we get we get that with singer but that's like you know we've been with the trisolarians like for so long it would have been like a little bit nice to see like maybe their their side of their deception and I think it's right interesting that you bring up that you know in this very Part, we do get like a little bottle episode that doesn't yeah. necessarily have a lot of impact. So it's not like the author is afraid to give us things that are not pure plot. They totally right. could, could give us more insight into, you know. I think uh, maybe maybe it's like maybe it's like cut content because like there's just so much that ha- like looking at this like we're only three sevenths of the book in right and like we're already through Australia and like just think about like how much more stuff happens right so. Uh, I think there's only so much he could pack in there and maybe he couldn't figure a way to to uh, to pack in another Trisolaran. Or maybe that the singer thing was good enough. I don't know. There's um, there's no follow-up this week, but I do want to clarify something I said from the last spoiler cast. Mm. So I wasn't saying that I think that the Bronze Age trial should stand alone because I particularly enjoyed it. And it was such good writing. But I do think that the last section that we all read together a lot of things happened and it can be confused as seeming like only one thing happened. Like the bronze age trial, I think takes away Mm. from the discoveries that are happening on blue space and their contemplations on dimensions and light speed, which I think have more of an impact. And I think they're crushed together a little bit in last episode, but we see more of that in, in this part. So we'll push on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hard balance, right? Like, do we want to have, 30 episodes <laughs> with, uh, you know, one chapter each or, you know, like kind of compress it a little bit much. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how the TV show does. Right. Cause like, that's ultimately how this is, this podcast was modeled is like how I think the TV shows kind of break up. Like probably they're not going to have only seven episodes, but the, we'll be, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they actually break it up too and not Chernobyl have too much happening. Five. That's true. Um, yeah. And speaking of the Australia part, so uh, I know, I mean, you, you're saying you weren't a huge fan of it um, just because you thought it was mostly inconsequential. Um, 
I, I guess like maybe you want to talk talk a little bit more about your feeling there. Yeah, not not to completely repeat myself, and I'm going to drag Tim into this as well because I think he was <laughs> he was my ally in this. Yeah. But it, it seemed like this was again it it was it was, it could have stood outside of this book. It was more of a here's here's a social. I'm going to set up this this situation, and then it's going to be a social exploration of what what happens. Uh, when one extremely powerful person has rule over a lot of less powerful people, I, I don't. Again, I I don't. I haven't read the rest of the book, and I'm sure some there's some bad feelings or whatever because of this. But as far as advancing the plot, I didn't get a lot out of this, and um, I think the second half of this this long long chapter about Australia, I think I actually just <laughs> mostly skimmed it because I was like, well. Nothing's really going to happen. I mean, so fun killing a bunch of people. That was that was new because there hasn't been a lot of that type of violence in this book. So that yeah. was a change. But other than that, it was, I don't know. I, I, I think if this whole chapter was cut, I don't know if I would have missed it. And it could have been replaced by two paragraphs yeah. saying this happened. It seems like this was the, the great, what do they call it? The That time period that we skipped over in the second book. Some kind of valley. Oh, the Great Ravine. Yeah, the Great Ravine. This is like yeah. a, like a mini ravine. Yeah. And I think that this is actually one of those times where in the Netflix adaptation or in the TV show, they could honestly just see this as the set is now in Australia. Fill this with writing. Like I wouldn't <laughs> mind if this is mm. the chapter where you know, other consequential things happen. Like they build Halo 2. They start development mm. on light speed ships where even she has her meeting with, you know, Yun Tianming, like something that's more connected because I know she meets this Aboriginal and she gets persecuted and then sympathized, but it's just not consequential. Like I, in my rereads, I, I often do skip Australia, to be honest. Yeah, the the way you described Italia would have been much more interesting if it became kind of a resistance movement and they don't have access to technology, but they're still trying to, you know, advance and things. I think that would have been a lot more interesting other than, oh, we're just broken and we're going to be miserable and here's how miserable we are. Well, when I listen to the main show, I'll see what you and Tim have to say. So, yeah, I mean, like, I really like this chapter. I mean, I guess, like, I like it as, as more of like a I, I like it in the same way I like the first half of Dark Forest, where it's more of like a sociological exploration of like what humanity would be in like extreme circumstances. Like the premise of like the first half of Dark Forest is like, all right, well, you know, the aliens are coming. So like, well, how would humanity react to it? And they, they act in really interesting ways. And this is sort of a smaller kind of more contained version of that, where like, all right, all humanity needs to pack into like this one small island. And I really like how yeah the resistance movement forms up how the the sort of uh, the collaborators like who like just you know who turn on humanity like uh, show up and like you know they side with the trisolarians we have the native australians who are like blocking off like the good parts of australia from everybody else yeah. because they're being more nativist I, I can see it being like the australia parade being like a whole season of the show just like that i think would be a a cool show in itself, right? Just kind of expand on some of those themes. And uh, there's like tons of stories you could tell in that that world, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not plot-wise, I guess, super consequential. It's more talking about, yeah, just how humanity would react to, to a situation like that, which I I really liked. 
Uh, but I can see like how it it's not directly tied to the plot other than showing humanity's uh, cycle of <laughs> how, how, how they react to these kind of things. Well, my favorite thing on this podcast is when we disagree. So um, I do like when you <laughs> offer a completely different point of view. I would ask, like we've had throughout these chapters, these short mini splices from these memoirs, like a, a past outside of time, a life mm. outside of time. And it seems like that does some of the work about discussing the sociological implications of, you know, humanity wondering if it's being ruled by technology or by a dictator or by the threat of an invasion or themselves. And it seems like that's happening in small pieces throughout. What do you think that the Australia chapter gives that these uh, small slices from the like semi-omniscient narrator do not? I always saw that as more, I guess like the, those chapters seem to focus specifically like the omniscient narrator of the parts that they're talking about. Um, like in the big, in the very beginning, they talk about like the sword holder and like why humanity chose a sword holder like that. Or they'll t- yeah, mm-hmm. talk about Australia, talk about the bunker era, talk about all those different things. But it's not, I mean, there's like, because I mean, it's spoiler cast, so it's junk sheet, like, you know, kind of reflecting on, on humanity throughout the, throughout the book. And so that's coming from her perspective, but it's, it's kind of talking about humanity as a whole. Right. Um, and so like, that's the point of those things. And I think like, you know, her just kind of thinking about like how humanity would react versus like actually seeing the, or, you know, reading how the, they actually do react to a certain situation are like two different things to me. I'd like to get Amin's opinion, or yours too, Dan. Like, how are you taking in these memoirs that are interspersed between the chapters? Are they intrusive? Do they add to it, or do you not even notice them? Um, so I, until Dan just mentioned it, I hadn't actually thought about who the author of those memoirs was. <laughs> so thanks for spoiling that for me, Dan. Um, <laughs> That's the point of the show. You signed I know, up for it. <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I'm, that wasn't a sarcastic thank you. That was a, that was a real thank you. Now I don't have to wonder anymore. Um, but it was, I, I thought it would be intrusive and a distraction, but actually I don't, I don't notice, I mean, I notice that the chapters are there, but I don't notice them interrupting the flow of the story. I, I don't know that they necessarily mm-hmm. um, add a lot in that in that context but it is yeah I, I i think it's it's an interesting narrative uh mechanic that he's using that um surprisingly does not annoy me yeah it kind of reminds me of reading like frank herbert if you're familiar with his work um he wrote dune if you've read some more okay. school and so you'll read especially as the series gets longer, like, oh, these are from the journals. And I think there are people who do keep meticulous track of like, oh, this is when these journals would have had been written and they were in this bloodline. But for me, I'm just like, all right, it's history. You know, again, I'm like not always concerned with who the narrator is. It just adds a non-intrusive bit of variety. So it's not just, you know, first person. You can have a little indulgence in omniscience. Yeah, it reminded me of the the chapters in Watchmen. So like Watchmen is like broken up into 13 books, I think. And at the end of each one, they have like a news article or a journal or something like like Rorschach's journal or something or a news article. And like, yeah, it just adds a little bit more color to to the world that's outside of the story. Uh, I think I when I first read it, I don't I definitely didn't connect that it was 
would have been Changshin the whole time. I I guess I just took it as yeah some some narrator like giving giving more context. And I think it's better on subsequent readings knowing that it's her the whole time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, kind of reflecting on uh, humanity's path to where she eventually ends up on. So speaking of a world outside, do you want to talk about four dimensions? Let's do it. So Blue Space learns how to use, well, enter and use four-dimensional fragments. And we actually get a very rich understanding of how they're able to do that. And that from their point of view, three dimensions is sort of equivalent with fragility. Once again, it's like humanity feels completely helpless. And then they realize they can lie and realize that they can sort of attack a problem from the side. And they see the droplets, the, what are they called? Strong interaction material, which Mm. like no matter in the world can penetrate because the atoms are bound together. Just like, whoops, you can come at it from the fourth dimension and actually it's completely fragile again. And so, they don't even know what they're doing. There's like, they said yeah, that they go in there like, exactly. m- m- mess around with it. And like, <laughs> freaks. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of just like, I don't know, in like anarchist flicks, you just see like a very complicated like mainframe or like Library of Alexandria and they can't read it. They can't code it. So they just like, hammer it with a sledgehammer <laughs> yeah I, I mean obviously like this this chapter is super hard to kind of wrap your head around um mm. and i think it's I, I, I he took like a really big challenge of like trying to write trying to describe fourth dimension when like no one could even like really comprehend it uh, and then uh, i think it to me like i don't know maybe uh, I, I talked about this also on the main show but like I think it's probably easier to write about than it's going to be to visualize. I, I so I, I've been thinking about this since the, since we recorded the main show, and I think what they're going to do is they're going to do some kind of cheat where they're going to try to show the fourth dimension as you know everything all rolled out the way he describes it mm. for like one or two shots, and then they'll they'll go to something like the color will be different or they'll use a different lens or something like that to to continue that without having to to film it so so the audience understands that we're in the fourth dimension using either again uh light or lens or some kind of change like that but otherwise it's just going to be a momentary thing because I, I think the way he describes but what about sh- like expressing the scope of the fourth dimension in the first place never mind like the logistics of filming it I don't know that that is possible <laughs> to, yeah. to really capture unless you unless you have some person talking and it's just a lot of exposition. I, I don't know how else you would you would I don't know how you would show that and not tell that part. Well, we that. do have we do have characters talking. I mean, to explain the fourth dimension, I admit it is mostly, you know, us reading about it. But I feel like a monologue would be very forgivable. Yeah, a monologue over some cool looking visuals or something. I think like the main thing they talk about is like how, and I think it was a uh, Guani Fan was saying like it, it it's an infinite series of like going keep going down into things like getting detail in, uh, inside detail inside detail mm-hmm. inside detail. I forgot the exact quote was, but like apparently he had some famous quote about 4D. Uh, anyways, I'm thinking of like like the opening shot of like Fight Club, you know, where they go like <laughs> from like the brain all the way down to the the gun, you know. Uh, where it's not something like exactly like that, but like where it's really really drilling down into, I guess in reverse, like the just like the the poss- how everything just opens up the more you look into it. I think it does have to be like an information overload visually. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's an important point too, because like I, I thought the interesting thing was like when they leave 40 space, they feel really confined and like claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah, claustrophobic. They're like, oh my God, it's like only three dimensions. I can't like see into things. And yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be difficult. <laughs> Um, but we you know we don't actually spend that much time in 4D. Like this is like the only like really time that we go into it, you know, this these these yeah. chapters. So it's not like it's gonna be like a continuing theme. So hopefully they have a lot of budget and a lot of cool ideas. I mean, they have to be thinking about this, you know. People people <laughs> have tried to visualize 4D. If you play video games, there's a video game called Forgive Me for the Butchering, I don't speak Japanese, uh Miega Kure, where you can sort of like you're playing in a 3d plane and then you turn perpendicular and you try and like walk perpendicular through a wall because a wall only blocks you in 3d mm. so you can i mean it's an old video game so people have been thinking about and there's no reason you can't just shamelessly steal other people's ideas yeah i think it's going to be possible as long as they explain it in the first place i think it'll work yeah i like yeah. your fight club idea <laughs> that's the only thing i can think of right because like th that's how i thought about it like you just like look at something and like it just like infinitely like expands you know like you look at a person and like then like their their whole body opens you can see like the inside of their lungs or the heart or whatever and then like looking into the heart you can like see see like the stuff going through without even like moving you just like keep just drilling yeah. into uh into something it's less interesting but i also think guan Fen talks about the whole idea of space in the fourth dimension like of course you know humans and ships and aliens are full of detail but when you look at space in 4d you know that there's like literally nothing there's nothing mm. and behind that even more nothing and i think yeah. just that immensity itself is is enough to you know communicate some of the scope of what they enter i don't know i liked going into 4d even though like dan said it's very brief yeah and it's brief for people who live there too <laughs> do, do do we spend more time in 4d or is this kind of it no we? yeah that happens to them yeah the mm. whole point is that like the 4d space is kind of collapsing on itself right like and so like it, this the sea is drying up as the as the ring says right like the and all these objects are being ejected into 3d space so Basically, we don't know if everyone like, who goes into 4d space wants to stay and no one yeah. can right and they're not even, they might even be from there, right? They said like the, I don't know, like they might have like, be like taking refuge in this, this particular fragment. Yeah, they're um, refugees. Yeah. And like some of them are dead, like the ring says it's a tomb and some of them are saying, and the ring says the other objects are either tombs or will be soon. So, so yeah, it's like, it's, it's a collapsing thing. And like the, the larger point later on is that the universe it probably started out as like 11 dimensions right and they you know and so like even four dimension is like pretty limited uh in in that regard so if the universe later on has a chance to reset and do another big bang like maybe we could the world could be 11 dimensional again and we can you know have the vastness of of that space no one really knows <laughs> but yeah. you know it's a lot to gamble yeah the idea is that like this this universe is like pretty old and dying uh, and then, you know, creatures native to 4D, like the ring, are are dying because of it. Or I don't know if it dies, but it definitely, it's not great. Oh, yeah, it dies. <laughs> it's not great for it to be projected into um, into into 3D space from 4D space. And, you know, I'll, I'll you know, totally, like I mentioned on the, sh the main show, like I did not understand this chapter the first time I read it. <laughs> I, I barely understand it now. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, and I, that, then that's probably a generous <laughs> under, uh, statement of me understanding it at all. Um, Talia, how do you feel about um, your understanding of, of these kind of these, these chapters? Hmm. I have two answers, I guess. One of them is that I'm a mathematician at heart, and so dimensions are a safe space for me, and mm. it's nice to read about them uh, because they're interesting geometrically, so why not write about them in fiction? And then another one is that when you look up like how to understand different dimensions, if you look up like videos or browse Reddit, of course, inevitably, they talk about time as a dimension and parallel universes. And I also relate to the comments on there, which say like, you know, in one of these parallel universes, there's a me who understands this, because uh, it might not be this one. Oh, I, I think this is a chapter that would emphasize the need to reread, honestly. Uh, like Definitely. Dan said, if you don't understand it the first time, just come back. And I think it, it helps also to like read it with the full context of the book too, right? Because well, like- Well, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. When you think about- how limiting it would be for us to live in two dimensions where right you know you couldn't even see the shape of anything or colors really imagine how much more limiting it would be to go from four to three and then sushin liu is saying okay but imagine you start at 11 and your brain kind of can't wrap its head around because it's not just levels it's like orders of magnitude every time you go up right yeah, that, that whole idea of imagining 3D going into 2D. So in college, oh. um, I think it was some math class I took. Um, the professor actually talked about the fourth dimension and, and how to start thinking about it and how to visualize it and stuff. Oh, cool. um, not visualize it, but but how to how to think about what you, what it might the experience might be like. And this is this is way way before these books came out. But I I like that idea. Of, so so when I was reading this chapter, that's what I was thinking about is like the difference between 2D and 3D, how vast that is, and then trying to compare that to 3D and 4D. So that that was that was the mechanism I was using through this. I I still don't think I understand it, but I <laughs> I, I think I somewhat can I don't think I understand how it actually works, but I can understand the complexity of it because of that. Yeah. And and part of it, the other thing, and this is ridiculous, and I can't believe we didn't bring this up on the main show, but there's the episode of The Simpsons, I think it was a Halloween special, where Homer goes from 2D to 3D. Oh, yeah. And, and he's he's totally <laughs> amazed by everything, and I'm sure it would be equally amazing for us to go to 4D. That's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> Wait, he goes from 2 to 3 or from 3 to 2? No, from 2 to two to 3. Cause like yeah he it's like the okay. Halloween special right and like nice. and it sees like the the hole in the ground and there's like spheres around right yeah nice yeah I mean it's it's fun to talk about it in fiction but I mean there's just real questions scientific questions when you talk about different dimensions like very practical questions like how does the relationship between surface area to volume change in another dimension could you actually fit more inside something than you know, there is of that object. And what does that mean for, you know, military aspects or fuel capacity? Because they're sort of absurd thought experiments in our world, but they're increasingly practical if you are in higher dimensions. So yeah, yeah, I like it. And, and, and that, that, so one of the questions I had on the main, the main show is I Googled as I was reading this. Um, so 
in in the book they said something about how they didn't want to touch anything so they used voice commands to hmm. to get around so yeah. one of the things i looked up was how do sound waves travel in four dimensions and okay, nice. google did not have a good answer for me <laughs> on that so i was wondering if you had any perspective or ideas because my my analogy was a, a sound wave on 2d is very different from a sound wave in 3d so i just wasn't sure if in 4D sound activated devices would work the same with her microphones and all that. I have a guess that's based on something that we read, but if you have a guess, Dan, you you can go first. I don't. (laughs) So do you remember when they're beaming the Rosetta Stone program from 3D into the ring? Mm -hmm. One of the technical problems that they have to get over is that the signal strength decays faster in four-dimensional space. So Mm, it's like a problem for them. They have to be closer, have to do something dangerous. I can't remember the exact consequences, but my interpretation of that was that there's so much more information in 4D that the waves, whether they're sound or light or neutrino, they hit more particles. So they're Mm. slower, they decay faster. And you've actually, well, that's, yeah. What do you think about that? Yes, I I buy that guess. So so basically, they would have to shout. They would have to speak much louder to be able to use the same devices the same ways. Because we can't do the whole like thought yeah. con- thought commands that the Trisolarians can do. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, maybe because they use the thought commands that they because they go at the speed of light, right? And so like yeah, sound waves are way 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 slower than than light. So they're so. way slower. Yeah, yeah, although you've brought up another sort of point about another spoiler, if you'll indulge me, for like the very, very, very end of the book, where after the solar system has been two-dimensionalized and Changxin tells the galactic humans that they find like about what happened, and she says, if you go back, you can see we just saw the solar system like get flattened. You can go back and look at it. And they reveal to her actually what you saw wasn't the 2D universe. You just saw like the energy escaping from the 2D universe into ours because the 2D universe is actually invisible because there's nothing to scatter light because there's no thickness. So it does matter like the way different sound waves or different waves travel in different dimensions. Shame on Google for not having, you know, more, (laughs) more resources for you. Well, Well, also my Google search terms could have been wrong, but. It's a hard thing to Google, right? And probably there's like not that much, <laughs> not much, unless you like Googling like scientific journals or, you know, some mathematic thesis. Have you got any really dedicated <laughs> listeners that want to drop us some peer reviewed journals? Yeah, we probably um, won't no. understand them <laughs> or I won't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to find them, research them and translate them so we understand it, please email us. Yeah, make a YouTube video and, you know, or make a TikTok and we'll watch that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Short <laughs> attention span. Um, so the last thing about the, or the, one thing I want to bring up about the ring in general, and it's not about dimensionality, but like more about the storytelling mechanism where it's, you know, talks really in kind of these like metaphors and that kind of thing. How did you feel about that? I mean, because like there's a lot of that coming in the next chapter, <laughs> like a lot. Um, I don't think it, uh, I don't think I really noticed it, so I probably won't notice it in the future either. So do you, I mean, in general, do you like like kind of abstract um, stories where you have to kind of figure out the meaning? Like, 
like stories about dreams. I always like think think about like for the next the next chapter, like where people um, the, like if you watch The Sopranos, like they have a lot of uh, episodes about dreams or comas or that kind of stuff, and they have like all these like symbolism and that kind of thing. You have to like pick out like oh this thing means that thing and that and that that sort of that that sort of storytelling. Do do you like that kind of storytelling or would you rather just be more straightforward? Uh, I like it more straightforward. It always feels like. Um feels like I'm in high school English class when there's a lot of symbolism and other yeah. types of meaning <laughs> in in books that the author may or may not have intended um, yeah so I don't know it's it's fine I I don't I don't overanalyze books like that very often so I will say so the next the next chapter and hopefully this is going to increase I'm doing this because I want you to enjoy the next chapter or the next section of the the show um and just kind of set up the context around it, and it, it's it's explained in the in the the text as well. But just to give you a little more color, so like um, the this you we get a series of fairy tales that are told from the Yuntian Ming to Changxin, and they're coded in in metaphors and symbolism because he cannot give any important information to Changxin, so he has to like wrap it in these metaphors to be able to give her clues about how the earth can save themselves from the impending dark forest strike that's coming. He is in danger himself uh, by revealing any information. And uh, he is trying, I think heroically trying to save the um, you know, ch- human race by giving her this information at peril to himself. Like he could have been killed for, for doing this. So hopefully that's going to like, as you're reading it, like, there's, <laughs> I'm I'm really interested to see you guys' reaction because it's I don't know I don't know if it's controversial but it's like I can see how it could be off-putting. I, I, I mean, Talia, when you first read it, like, what was your reaction to to the fairy tales? Oh, they were awesome. So you liked that the first time you read it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way that they are told is that we are, you know, alerted that they're going to mate. So there's a little reveal that he's still alive. And then they actually interact and there's sort of a fake out, which no one really buys, but it's a fake out of like, oh, I guess we can't discuss anything important. And Changshin is supposed to believe that he's given up, which again is very hard to buy because we already think of him as heroic at this point. And he's been set up and he's had all these physical changes that she can see and implied spiritual or like, you know, internal changes as well because he was a depressed pale college kid and so it's hard to buy that he would just give up and then he tells her this story and you suspect something good is going to happen and when Changshin comes back to the earth they finally read the stories together and that's when the reader gets to hear the stories for the first time yeah and I, I really I, I, I like the stories themselves but I really like how all humanity kind of bands together to decipher the stories so it's not like just you on your own trying to decipher mm-hmm. the stories but it's like all of humanity trying to decipher the meaning behind the stories and like how they're constructed and they have like the dual and triple layer metaphors and like the bearing coordinates of the of the of how to decipher the metaphors and stuff so it's, you're not on your own trying to decipher them and you know I don't think that anybody besides maybe Lucian knows the entire meaning of all of them. Uh, yeah. You know, I've tried to look online of like different way, different parts of the stories and stuff, but I mean, obviously we'll talk a lot more about this next time, but I kind of want to just set the, set the stage for, I mean, a little bit, because I know uh, it can be a little bit off-putting to get like 
why are we reading three fairy tales in the middle of this thing? And it's like really kind of hard to decipher. So I, I hope you appreciate it um, when you do read it. Also, I think the average reader, myself included, has maybe not read like Grimm's fairy tales for like more than a decade before right. they picked up this. So yeah. it's a little nostalgic <laughs> for us, for us all. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, like, and just as a story, it's an interesting story regardless, right? Like the, even if you're not trying to decipher the metaphors, like the, I think the fairy tales are interesting, but it's like, why is it in the science fiction book? <laughs> um, but hopefully the, the, as you're reading it, knowing the context of it, like makes it that much better. Cause then you're reading, you're trying to decipher it and reading the story at the same time. I'm not so sure how they're going to film that either, but we'll see. I mean, like the, I think technically wise, it shouldn't be that difficult stylistically wise. I don't know. We'll see. But again, we can talk more about it next time we actually have read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the fairy tales are going to be just like playing tennis with the net down. It's just like you don't have to adhere to any kind of style choices. You don't have to cast Chinese actors. You don't right. have to like <laughs> follow exactly the way it's written because it's all made up. I think it's going to be very easy. But we yeah. can talk about it when we actually read them. <laughs> All right. Well, any other things that you guys wanted to talk about? No, nothing else for me. Talia, anything else? Uh, what's the title of the next show? Well, I'm glad you asked. So our next episode is season five, episode four, The Storyless Kingdom, which is the first half of part three of Death's End by Lee Su Shin. So thanks everyone for listening. You can leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. See you next time.